The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. I'd mentioned this morning, as Bobby led the invitation song, Trust and Obey, that we would be talking about that this evening. And so you might turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 17, where we'll begin with just a passage on a consideration of trust we're to have in God. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 7, the scripture tells us, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Again, Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. We often stress the point that saving faith is more than just assent to the facts of Scripture and of Jesus being the Son of God. It's more than just believing simply the facts of what God's Word says. The denominations teach salvation by faith only. And so when we speak about faith, we often stress the fact that it's not simply assent to the facts, but saving faith is an obedient faith. As Romans 1 and verse 5 says, Paul told the brethren there, through Christ we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. Other translations render that obedience of faith. And so the faith that saves, which Romans and the rest of the gospel talks about, is a faith which obeys. In fact, the reading of the New American Standard Bible would indicate to us that in hearing in saving faith is obedience. Obedience of faith, which means faith obeys, at least the faith that saves. And that's certainly a good thing to stress, but I think sometimes when we do those things, we we can kind of tend to get lost in those discussions and and we maybe lose some perspective that would be beneficial to us where sometimes Christians stressing the facts of we're not saved by simply assent to the facts, but we've got to do something also can kind of leave out a facet of faith that is key to us being pleasing to God. And it kind of goes without saying that faith also means more than just belief, but trust. I think we understand that faith means trust. But I think that really harping on that and emphasizing that and thinking about that truth, that concept that saving faith is trust in God will really kind of open our eyes to things, especially in our own lives, hopefully. Arton Gingrich gives a definition to the Greek word pistis, which is translated faith throughout the New Testament. And the first definition he gives is that which evokes trust and faith. It's not just belief, but he emphasizes trust. He also says it's the state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted, trust, confidence, faith. And so a large part of the reason why we obey God, we do what he says, is because we believe he exists. We believe his word is truth. And so we want to follow the facts. We will do what we see God says to do. We believe Him. But you know, a big part of that is not just the fact that we believe He exists, or we believe that His Word says this and not that, but we trust in Him. That's a huge part of why we obey Him. And I think that this kind of gives us some insight into why we see some Christians, some who are members of the Lord's Church, who have been baptized into the body of Christ for the remission of their sins, been added to the one kingdom. This gives us an insight into why some of those people who are Christians stop following Christ or they just don't seem consistent in it. That doesn't seem like they're, they're really all in in regard to spiritual things. And it's because although they do believe that God exists and they believe that Jesus left heaven and is God's son and he died on the cross for their sins and they believe he was raised the third day. They believe he ascended to heaven and they believe that he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And on top of that, and in a very important way, they believe in the inspiration of scripture. They believe that no man can guide us to salvation, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And only through his infallible word can we find the way to heaven. 
And they believe all of those things. In other words, they know they're factual. They would recite them in such a way that shows they have understood them and known them, but also that they believe the truth of those matters. And yet in spite of all of those things, there are people who believe those things and yet they don't do what the Word of God says. They don't follow God. They're disobedient. They're not on fire for the Lord. They're not diligent in the things that they do and they don't do a lot of things. And I think it speaks to the concept of trust. They lack trust. They may believe in God and and believe these facts, but they don't trust God. Consider Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Again, blesses the man who trusts in the Lord. But notice verse 8. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1 in verses 1 through 3 to us, where that blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor stands in the seat of the scornful or sits in the seat of the scornful. And it goes down and it describes him as a man who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water and all of those things. But where you have verse 7 of Jeremiah 17 saying, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And Psalm 1, it says the blessed man has a delight in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. If you trust in God, you will be seated and grounded in his word, which indicates to me logically that the individuals who are not following God's word must not trust him. We need to understand there's a great relationship between trust and obedience. And I understand we're just kind of using different words, but we can use different words to give the the deeper meaning of them. So we're talking about a relationship between faith and obedience, but consider the fact of faith not in just believing in the existence of God and believing in the facts disclosed to us in Scripture, but really trusting in that and trusting in the God we know exists, that there is a great relationship between trust and obedience. And I would suggest to you that every time someone disobeys, they're not obeying the Lord. It's because they don't trust in Him, not really. And so when trust is absent, obedience is absent. I think that we can see that very clearly in the example of the Israelites. Consider in Hebrews 3.16, the Hebrew writer, after quoting Psalm 95, and we'll get there in a minute, he says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Notice the pairing together of the word did not obey and the word unbelief. Why couldn't they enter in? They didn't obey. But he also says they didn't enter in because of unbelief. And he was alluding to their their rebellion so that the Christians he's writing to would not follow the same example of disobedience. They didn't obey because of unbelief. But I want us to consider really the inherent mistrust, distrust that was within their character before God that led to their disobedience. He quoted from Psalm 95 in verses 7 through 11 just previously. That psalm says in verse 7 of Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I want us to notice firstly in verse 8, this rebellion and the trial in the wilderness. Well, in the original psalm, the Hebrew word for rebellion is Meribah. And the Hebrew word for trial is Massa. And what he's doing is he's alluding to a specific time in Israelite history where they showed a lack of faith. They showed a rebellion. They showed a distrust in God. In Exodus, the 17th chapter in verse 7, shortly after the deliverance from the Egyptians, the Israelites in the wilderness began to complain. They were thirsty. And really this complaint about not having water is really about not trusting in God because they questioned earlier in that passage, is the Lord among us or not? And God gave them water from the rock. And in Exodus 17, 7, so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? I want us to understand the point of history in which this is found. 
It is obviously after the ten plagues in Egypt. It's after the parting of the Red Sea. It's after the destruction of the great Pharaoh and his army. After that great display of the mighty works of God, which incite faith in us who read about it. It was also after they came across some bitter waters where God made those waters sweet and suited to drink. And it was after they complained about hunger and the Lord sent them manna and they complained about the manna and the Lord sent them quail. And we also understand in the second recitation of the law to the second generation what Moses pointed out in Deuteronomy 8.3 about manna that he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God continually provided for them in spite of their complaints and murmuring and distrust to incite trust in them, to show that they can trust in God, that He'll provide for them in every way they need. He'll never let them down. He'll never leave them. And all of these manifestations of His provision should have caused them to trust. Yet, it's quite obvious in the rebellion that they did not trust. Also in Psalm 95 and verses 7 through 11, there is another period in the Israelite history that is alluded to. And I would suggest to you that he alludes to the beginning of their wilderness wanderings and the end of their wilderness wanderings to show the whole round of character in the Israelites in that time was distrust in God and it eventually led to its culmination and the fact that they were not allowed to enter in the rest. The Hebrew writer says in verse 18 and 19, because they did not obey, but because they did not believe. In Psalm 95, in verse 10, it says, For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And that's similar language to what we read in the account of them at Kadesh Barnea failing to have the trust in God to go in and conquer the Canaan land. After they came back with an evil report, God said to Moses in Numbers 14.22, because all these men who have seen my glory and signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Why didn't they enter in? Why, why did they get all the way to the promised land after seeing all of these works of God and, and they decided they did not want to go? They did not want to obey the voice of the Lord. In Numbers 13.31 Ten of the twelve spies gave this report. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And that's contrasted with Joshua and Caleb's report, who did trust in God when they said, If the Lord delights in us, in chapter 14, verse 8, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What that shows me is a stark contrast between the majority of the Israelites and Joshua and Caleb. What Joshua and Caleb did is they saw the works of God and they understood that these Canaanites are no match for God. I trust in God. I trust that God is able to deliver them into our hand and he calls them their bread. They're ours for the taking. That land is ours because God promised it to us. But the rest of them didn't trust in God. And since they didn't trust in God, they didn't obey. If they trusted in God, if they trusted God had the power to, to defeat the Canaanites, that God had the power to do what he did back in, in Exodus 14 when the waters of the Red Sea crashed down on the Egyptians and they were delivered from that original bondage, if they really trusted in God and, and had that kind of faith in him, they would have obeyed. Why didn't they obey? They didn't trust in God. And so it stands to reason that when trust is absent, obedience is absent, that if we trust, then we're going to obey. And I want us to consider that they had to trust God to enter that promised land. And when they didn't trust God, they didn't enter that promised land. And much like the Israelites, which is the point that the Hebrew writer is making, we are wandering in a wilderness on the way to a promised land. And we need not follow the same example of disobedience that they had. But we need to trust in God and then follow through with it in obedience. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul likewise gave the Israelites as an example of what not to do, but he also showed us that 
they also had the similar advantages we had in spiritual sustenance and guidance. When it said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 3 that all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You know, that spiritual rock that followed them was Christ and they didn't have the trust in God then. But we have a captain of our salvation who is Christ. And the way we're going to reach that promised land is to not follow that same mistake they made, but trust in our guide, trust in our military leader, our captain, Christ. In Hebrews 2 and verse 10, it says that it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He is called the captain of our salvation. That word translated into captain in the New King James Version is the Greek word archegos, and it's a compound word. The first part of that Greek word is arche, meaning to begin. And the second part is ego, meaning to lead. And so it has the connotation of beginning something, but also leading in something. And I think that's why the NIV renders archegos pioneer. He is the pioneer of our salvation. You think about a pioneer when new people enter a new land and the pioneer goes out ahead of the people or they are the pioneers ahead of other people that are coming behind them. And they discover this new land and they go through it. They're the first ones there. They've never been this way before and they they figure out where to go, where not to go. They see the dangers. They see what the land is like. And then others can follow their lead into that land. But how do you know the best way to go? How do you know the general direction? You trust in the pioneer. You haven't seen those things. But that's precisely the reason that pioneer was sent forth. So that you could know by his word, by his description, by the map that he drew, where to go. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's the beginner of our salvation. It starts with him, but he's the leader of our salvation. It's followed through with him. If we follow Jesus, we know that we'll reach the promised land. But what does that take? It takes an immense amount of trust. We walk by faith, not by sight. How do you show that trust, though? Chapter 4 of Hebrews kind of gives us insight into that. When it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, he's been through it. He can sympathize with us just like a pioneer has gone this way first. And not only that, but he has passed through the heavens. He has finished the race. In chapter 12, it calls him the author and finisher of our faith, who through the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went through life having to overcome temptation, having to continually submit to his Father's will, and he did that perfectly to the extent that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He reached his goal. He finished his race. And what he's saying is, follow my lead. I can sympathize with you. I can help you through these weaknesses. I can help you through these temptations. Just look to me and trust that my way is the best way. Trust that I know what I'm talking about. And you may not see what is beyond. You may not comprehend why this way is the better way. But trust. Not just trust that I'm the son of God. In fact... Not just trust that I died on the cross, in fact, but trust in the sense of you believe it's going to be successful. And in any doubts, you're going to cast aside because you unwaveringly trust in me. That's what faith is. And if we trust in our pioneer, we're not going to question him while we're taking the step here, while we're stepping over here, while we're going this direction, while we're not going this direction. We don't have to question it because we trust in him. He knows he went first. He was successful. But that trust is going to be manifested in obedience. In 1 John 2 and verse 6, it says, He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk 
just as he walked. And the context shows us that's by following his commandments. So what I'm trying to emphasize is that a failure to obey is not simply manifestation of a weakness of our character. Certainly it manifests a weakness of our character. Don't get me wrong. But that's not it. That's not the only thing. What it really does is it puts a display of distrust out there in God. A person who doesn't obey God is a person that doesn't trust in God, which really implies a perception that that person has of God's character that is somehow less than perfect. I don't trust. I'm not going to do what he says because because I don't trust that he's able to fulfill promises. I don't trust that he is even willing to fulfill those promises. I don't trust that he's an honest God, but he's capricious. He's going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed, if you will, and he's going to be different one day. If, if you're not obeying him, you're showing some kind of distrust in him. It may not be so. And so let me just suggest to you, it's not enough to believe the facts and to know that they're true, but you've got to trust in the one behind those things. You've got to trust in the God who gave us the truth. You've got to trust that he is true to his word and that he will follow through on everything that he said he would do. And if we trust, truly trust, then we're going to do what he says. And the people who don't do what he says and they're not striving for that obedience and that faithfulness and, and diligence and getting better and better and growing and growing and growing, they're not really showing a trust in God. Consider three points that we need to trust and obey. One of the things that we need to trust in is God's presence. Some of the times that we may be falling short is because we don't trust that God's presence is enough. We'd rather have the company of the world because God's presence just isn't enough. So I want some company. And so I'm going to do what the world does. I'm going to follow suit with the world. We know that that's not acceptable. Romans 12 and verse 2, the apostle Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so don't be fashioned like the world. Don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the gospel. Why would we want to conform to the world? Well, a simple understanding of that is that temptation means we're drawn to it. We have a desire of it. We know that we have a desire to, to those fleshly passions. And that's why in Galatians 6 or Galatians 5, rather in verse 17, it says that the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We have a, a pull to these things, but we know that as God's Spirit instructs us, those things are wrong, and so so we don't want to do them. And and so if we fall short, there's an obvious indication that we we had a desire to do it. We had a pull toward those things. But I want us to consider some other things. There's more to it than just the, the desire for the actual sin, that specific temptation. But it's a desire to be found in the presence of the world, to, to have some company, not to be the ones set apart, not to be the ones different, not to be the ones that are of the few. It's not enough that God's with us. We want the world's presence. He says, don't be conformed to this world. And that's the Greek word aeon, which means an age or a period of time. Vine says it's marked in the New Testament usage by spiritual or moral characteristics and is sometimes translated world. The revised version marginally always has age. And so it's suggesting don't be conformed to the pattern of the time, the pattern of the age. Satan is called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. And so world, as it's translated from aeon, has really the meaning in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to the way things are these days. Really, the spirit of rebellion. And so there's this concept of a majority that is acting this way. Don't be conformed to that modern thought, that, that common thought of the age in this sinful age. But you know, in 1 John chapter 2, the word world is seen. And John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he goes on to enumerate some of those things. But the word world translated there is the Greek word cosmos or cosmos. And it means orderly arrangement or decoration by implication, the world in a wider narrow sense, including its inhabitants, literally or figuratively. And so I think this gives us the understanding of this expanse of things, the, the world we live in and all the people that are in it. 
The universe is called the cosmos, and that's the word that we we get from this Greek word, cosmos with a K. Consider what Art and Gingrich says of this word cosmos. In 1 John 2.15, it forms an easy transition to the large number of expressions with Paul and John's writings in which the world and everything that belongs to it appears as that which is hostile to God, lost in sin, wholly at odds with anything divine, ruined and depraved. In other words, it has a connotation of the majority. The majority of people are in rebellion to God. The majority of people are not doing what God's word says. And what Paul is saying is don't do what the majority is doing or don't fall in line with the majority. And that's a temptation in and of itself. We want to go with the crowd. We don't want to be different. We don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. We, we want to be conformed. We want to go with the crowd. And God's telling us to do the exact opposite, which always in any circumstance when you're not going with the majority is an uncomfortable situation, regardless of what it is. But especially in regard to these spiritual and moral truths and concepts and walks of life. Don't be conformed to the world. Trust in God's presence. God's presence is enough and it should be enough for us. But sometimes people fall into sin because they don't want to be alone. You know, I think that's part of the human spirit in our creation. We don't want to be alone. This is something that God saw in Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So I will make him a helper comparable to him. It was never God's intention that man would be alone. In fact, Eve was not an afterthought, but she was created second because she was created for man. But I also suggest to you that God's way of doing this was to stress to mankind, stress to Adam, how essential and important Eve was to him. I'm going to let you look into all creation and you're not going to be able to find a helper comparable to you. And then I'll show you what you need. It's not good that man should be alone. And we feel this. And we feel this when we do have some companionship. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. We don't want to be alone. We know that in many is strength and we want to be with others. But let us never forget who the fellowship we have with, which one that is most important. What What is the most important companionship? What is the most important relationship? We can have all the friends in the world. We can be having everyone in the entire universe on our side doing the same things that they're doing and therefore having the fellowship with them. And that doesn't mean anything to our advantage. And we've always got to realize that when we're tempted to follow the world, follow the crowd to fit in and therefore transgress God's law, we need to remember God's presence is most important. And the people that that go after the world, what they're showing is that they don't trust that God's presence is enough. Maybe they don't trust that God's really with them. They need some kind of visual. But that's not what faith is. Who cares if nobody stands with us if the Lord does? That's the kind of trust we need to have. And that's the kind of trust which leads to obedience without question in any given circumstance. Because I don't care if I'm by myself. Because Christ is with me. The Apostle Paul had this understanding in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, nearing the end of his life in um, Roman house arrest and nearing his trial and the end of his life. In verse 10, he writes to Timothy that Demas has forsaken me. And guess what Demas did? He loved the present world and he has departed for Thessalonica. Demas had the problem that Paul warned about in Romans 12 and verse 10 or verse 2. And because of that, he forsook Paul. He elaborates in verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Why didn't that shake Paul? Why didn't that cause him to waver? He says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom to him be glory forever and ever. Paul trusted in the presence of the Lord. It was enough for him. And you know, that's the whole point of the gospel's revelation to us to make our joy full, not in the companionship with the world, but with God. In first John chapter four in verses three through four. 
rather in, in 1 John chapter 1, excuse me, in verses 3 through 4, the apostle John tells us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. What's going to make our joy full? What's going to be such a joyful occasion that we have fellowship with God and with his Son? You know, I'm reminded of Second Kings chapter 6 when Elisha was trying to get his servant to realize the strength of God's presence and cause him to trust in God's presence when the Syrian army was surrounding them. In 2 Kings 6 and verse 16, he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We've got to trust in the Lord's presence. We don't need the company of the world. That doesn't mean anything to us. And if we fully trust in God's presence, we fully rely upon His presence and fellowship with Him, then we're not going to seek to be like the world. I want us to consider also, related to that, we need to trust in God's assessment of things. We need to trust that God knows the true value of the things that we struggle with making decisions about. We need to trust that God really does know and that He can see beyond and He knows everything, not just some of the things that we know. And we need to trust in His ability to assess and evaluate what is the best thing to do and where is the best way to go. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 9 the Apostle Peter writes and warns about short-sightedness after encouraging spiritual growth. He says, He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. So those who don't add to their faith, those who don't grow spiritually, show that they're sidetracked with what is directly in front of them. And really, every time we sin, we show short-sightedness. We're not looking beyond into the eternal treasures, but we're looking at what's right in front of us. We want instant gratification. We don't want what God offers. That's too far off. And every time we sin, we display that character, whether we acknowledge it or not. We are suggesting that we want instant gratification. I don't want to want, want, wait for what God is offering. And in that is an essential distrust. I don't trust that the reward God is offering is actually worth it. And who's to say otherwise? If you take what is right before you right now, what else does that display other than not trusting that what God offers is worth waiting for and sacrificing for? No, I want this. I want this that's here right now. That's what we do and we sin. We don't have trust in God's assessment. We think we know better at the time and really what we do is we show a trust in the assessment of the devil when he says, this is so much better than what God's offering you. Don't trust in that. Trust in this. That's what he tempted Jesus with. And that's when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, those who object to this thought that their sin does not indicate a lack of trust and, and God's assessment that the heavenly treasure is greater than the spiritual treasure should re, re-look at uh, or then the physical um, blessings and treasure, rather the, the lust of the flesh, they should revisit a text like Matthew six twenty one, which says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you are cho- choosing to sin, if you're choosing to do this and, and contradict God's law and transgress it, then you are showing that exact attitude of not trusting that God's offering, what He is offering us, is better than what the world offers us. Consider back in 1 John chapter 2, as we alluded to it before, the assessment of God when he contrasts the physical world and the lust in it and the temptations to sin that are there with what God offers. When he warns, don't love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He continues in this description. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You know what verse 17 tells me? It tells me how long the worldly valuables or lusts or pleasures last in comparison to heavenly treasure. These will pass away and even the desire for it, the lust of it. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You know what people are doing when they follow their lusts and they just give themselves to whatever desire they have? They are defining themselves by the temporal material world. And so you might ask a person, who are you? What makes up you? And they may talk about their relationships. They may talk about their job. They may talk about their possessions in their bank account. This is who I am. Look at my net worth. Look at the things that I have. They're defining themselves by the temporal. Now, who are they going to be when all of that is melted away? He says they will fade away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. If someone asks me, who are you? What makes Jeremiah Jeremiah? Well, what my answer should be is my relationship with God. Now, if that's the case and that is true and I'm displaying that, then I won't be sorry in the end because all of these things I could have defined myself with will be completely and utterly destroyed, but my relationship with God will be even strengthened beyond what I've ever could imagined on this earth. He who does the will of God abides forever. That's God's assessment of things, and we need to trust in that. As 1 Peter 1, 3 says, He has begotten us again to a living hope, an inheritance that is undefiled, that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for us. You know, Moses trusted in God's assessment of things. In Hebrews 11 and verse 24, it explains that by faith, or we could say by trust, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Who told him about that? It was disclosed to him by God through his word, through his will, and he trusted in God's assessment. Paul manifested that he trusted in God's assessment. In Philippians 3 and verse 7, he said, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Gaining Christ to Paul and all that that entailed and went with it, he trusted God's assessment that it was better, it was worth it, far greater than anything that he had gained before. And the Apostle Paul calls the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6 not to trust the assessment of the devil and of the world, but to trust God's assessment. In 1 Timothy six seventeen, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Trust in God, not in riches. Lay up heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure. Trust in God's assessment. And going back to Second Peter chapter 1, that's exactly what we're to do. And the way we show that trust is by growing spiritually. Those are the fruits that we're to be rich in. Those are the treasures we're to be laying up that the Bible talks about is growth in Christ Jesus, giving all diligence to add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And he says, if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never stumble. What do you gain by that? Why is that worth it? Verse 11, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're working for, brethren. And so we should never fall prey to temptation. I'm not saying it never will happen, but we always need to guard ourselves from it by trusting in God's assessment. Anytime we're tempted for something, don't just give in, but evaluate things. Look to what God has assessed. 
trust in his assessment and evaluation that this is fleeting. It's temporary. It's not worth it. But these things within God's will, if you define yourselves by them, if you take hold of them and, and hold on for dear life, it's going to be worth it. Trust in God's assessment. And lastly, and again, related to these things, we need to trust in God's promise. We need to trust in what he said is waiting for us. We need to trust that all those we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, our citizenship is not here, that we will have a realized full citizenship and actual interest entrance into the city of which we are a part, where our heart is, where our mind is. We need to trust in God's promise. So many times individuals fall short in temptation. They fall prey to the devil's works and they sin against God because they don't have a full trust that that city will actually be seen by them, that they will actually enter the presence of the city of God and be before him and worship him all for eternity. They just got this name tag of Christian and and they're a pilgrim, they're a stranger, and, and they fall prey to what the world has to offer, a true citizenship that can be fully realized right here, right now, it's right here in front of us, instead of trusting that the heavenly citizenship will be realized. And they manifest the attitude of the enemies of the cross of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul says, Many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And he contrasts that with the one who trusts in God. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. In other words, as 1 Corinthians 15 demonstrates, we are citizens of a city, of a, a land, the promised land, if you will, of a place, of a dwelling that we can inhabit in the flesh which is why we need a spiritual body. We need a transformation. We need a resurrection to a spiritual body. And that's what Paul is saying, that those who are citizens of heaven do not yet have, but eagerly anticipate, and that with a full trust that it will come into fruition. But only those who don't trust in God turn to the temporal, and they turn to what is visual, and they turn to what they can have right now but we demonstrate the trust in god's promise of a full realization of our citizenship in heaven where we inhabit that spiritual body and we are actually literally before our god and father for eternity we fully trust in that and we show that trust by walking in the lord and by conforming to his will or as chapter 4 of Philippians in verse 1 says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. We demonstrate that trust by following the direction of Christ and holding on to His Word and making our every move under its guidance. You know, we need to understand that the kingdom of God is without observation. As Jesus said in Luke 17 and verse 20, that it does not come with observation for the kingdom of God is within you. However, we also understand that one day faith will become sight. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it explains that now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And one of the ways of explaining why is because love will always continue. But we have faith because we don't see. But when we see, there's no longer faith. We have hope because we have not yet attained. But when we have obtained what we hope for, it will no longer be hope. As the Apostle Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In other words, we need to, right now, trust in God's promise of that entrance into the kingdom of heaven 
in totality, in full realization that our heavenly citizenship will be not just in future tense because we're strangers and pilgrims in this foreign land, but we will fully inhabit that heavenly city. But when we decide to participate in the way of the world where its citizens live their life and how they live their life, we show a lack of trust in the promise of God of that heavenly city. You know, Abraham and company, they lived as pilgrims. They lived as sojourners. But they did it and always followed God because they trusted in the city that God promised them. In Hebrews 11 and verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And notice verse 15. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. And that would fall right in line with what we're saying. If they didn't trust in God that that city existed and it was worth it, and they followed His every word because of that, then they would have turned back to Ur of the Chaldees. They would have turned back to Abraham's homeland. They would have turned back to idolatry and polytheism. They would have turned back to all they knew before. There was a certainty that they could see and they could touch and they could handle. But they didn't recall that country because they knew what God promised was certain. It was real. It was there. And although they didn't see it, they trusted they would receive it if they followed God's will. Verse 16 says, Now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their people free as prepared a city for them. Likewise, Jesus gives us those promises that we need to trust in and manifest that trust by following him unwaveringly. In John 14 and verse 1, he tells the disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And let me suggest to you that he's saying, You trust in God, trust in me. Trust what I'm about to tell you. Trust all the promises I'm giving to you. Trust that though I'm saying I'm going away in this context, that I'm not leaving you totally, that you will see me again. There goes my, my, my phone. I guess I activated Siri. Trust in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he tells them about that city. In my father's house, he says, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us. And you know what? We read in the Scripture that he was doing just what he said he was doing. He prepared that place for us, not with a hammer and a chisel or a nail or a screwdriver or a saw. He went and prepared the place with His blood. It's a spiritual dwelling in the presence of God. And He entered in that presence behind the veil as Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 demonstrates with His blood so that we could enter in as well, having been atoned by that blood. And then as Thomas asked, how do we know the way? He simply stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We go through Jesus. We trust in Him, as we mentioned before from Hebrews 2, the one who is the captain of our salvation. He began that. He began it with His blood. He began it with His life He lived and the example that He gave. He began it with His word established in the new covenant put into motion, consecrated by His precious blood. He began it and He's leading us in it. And we need to trust in the promise that we will end up where He is if we follow that line He has fastened for us that enters into presence of God. We need to trust the immutability of God's counsel. We need to trust His promises as Abraham did. In Hebrews 6 and verse 13, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. 
Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. All the Hebrew writer is trying to demonstrate is that God went above and beyond. He went out of His way to give us the confidence in the promises He was making. You know, God's Word should be enough. But He not only gave His Word, He promised. And you can't break a promise. And we know that. We understand the nature of promises. And then He took an oath. And with that, we know God's not able to lie. He cannot lie. And God took those two things. He made that promise and He he took that oath so that beyond a shadow of a doubt, we would know and have a trust that His promise will be fulfilled. It is certain. And the way we show that trust is doing what Abraham did. We follow him in faithful obedience. Notice verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That hope means we don't yet possess it. However, it enters in the presence behind the veil. It's as good as having it right before us. And it's all connected to our forerunner. And it's connected to the promises of God made through Him. We need to trust in God to the extent that we live like we don't belong here, but we live like we belong somewhere else. We live like true citizens of heaven, not America, and not of any other country or state or province. We live like we're citizens of heaven. And we do that by trusting in God and obeying His Word always. We need to realize that we're in effect saying that we don't trust God when we disobey His Word. And that if we say we trust in God fully, that we're going to obey His Word in all points and in all circumstances. We need not only believe that God is, but we need to believe that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. In other words, we believe He exists and we trust that He'll reward us if we follow Him. And the only way we show that trust is by obeying His Word and faithfulness to all that He's given to us so that we can be in heaven with Him. I hope that this lesson was beneficial to you and I hope that you can make an application to your lives and therefore grow before God this day. We will again have Bible class on Wednesday night at 7. Stay tuned for that Uh, go to meeting link and the message on Facebook and the text message. And I hope to to see you listening in on that and, and see you in on that live stream at the appropriate time. I hope you have the blessed rest of the Lord's day and a blessed week. Thank you for your kind attention.